<sighs> you okay, Doctor? What's up, Doc? I just woke up. All right, yeah, I was totally geared up for this being in the evening, so actually I'm glad it's now, but I didn't, I, but my mindset was to prep a book to sometime today, so I have... Uh, that would explain why you never got back to us with a book. Correct, yes. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, 7.30, all right, I got plenty of time tomorrow to do stuff. I can go to the grocery store, I can look at the Durango, and then I can do that in the afternoon, and then, well, what? And I happened to hear my phone... I, I I had it on silent, but I heard like and really realized I had a cat in my back. He was stretched out behind me. Was me <laughs> cat in your back? Is that like is that like having a snake in your boot? Is that yeah? Like? I had a cat in my back. Well, it's better than my rat in the my bathroom. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks. Internet radio broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. All right, so let me pull up the books. Or can you guys throw the books in this chat? Or oh, for I, so I, well, it, shut up! God damn you! I can probably go back to Facebook, but then I gotta go through like Dropbox. Hang on, I'm working on it. Jesus Christ, man, bite me! If you were here, (laughs) I'd send my dog after you. Yeah, and I, well, I wouldn't do that, but I just, I'll just say I'd put my foot up and just keep it away because it ain't gonna do anything. Come on, you're a girly man. She'll she'll take you right out. What happened yeah, to my you viewers got it? here? You lazy. Hang on, I'm trying to go to the. Oh, you man, you you were an ass to 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 Scott too. How many times? What did you accidentally? You got old man disease. You kept hitting that send button over and over and over again. What what, what was that? What did I do? You act like what, what I, I did. What I do? <laughs> what I do? My, that's what my do? Uh, my Joe Pesci from the from uh, Goodfellas. You act like what I did. No, you sent like four times. Yo, you lazy. F- Oh, no, that, that's, that was only meant to be sent once. That was probably just a glitch on the uh, <laughs> send. I, th- I think you sent, oh, you lazy one time. It gets the message across. I don't think I need to send it four times. Well, it did, though. It was like, let me see, yeah. yeah well, don't be such a lazy oh, No, <laughs> you, yeah, you big, sleepy, lumbering fool. One, two, <laughs> three, four, five times. I don't know how that happened, but whatever. I think it got my message across. Obviously not, because I still thought it was in the evening. Well, you 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 weren't the uh, lazy lumbering fool so I was talking you to. You even at that said time. Sunday morning, and and okay, but but that well that was on a previous day, and then Saturday you said you said tomorrow morning. I'm an idiot. Wow. 
Oh, well, it is another quote. <laughs> I hate you. You're despicable. <laughs> All right, so I wanted to start at 7.30. It is now 8.30. <laughs> Sorry. And I got stuff today, so we should actually do this. I see one book in the chat. You should see two books in the chat. I see two. I see bones. I see gizzards and bones. I see trees of green. Red roses, too. No, I'm I'm doing Alan Sherman. I'm not doing... Uh... Yeah, I'm doing Louie. Say goodbye to Uncle Louie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't die, Mr. Wabbit. <laughs> You could have been doing uh, Spencer Tracy, too. It's the big W. No, no, no. That was Jimmy Durante, by the way. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Spencer Tracy was the star of the movie. That's right. He was the one that was chasing him. Tell me it doesn't matter, Aunt Bell. Tell me. <laughs> he thought he was his aunt. <laughs> I love that movie. Wonder if they have that. wonder if they have that in 3D for Scott's house. Which one? It's a mad, 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 mad world. I've never seen that. Uh, what? I know the movie you're talking about, but I've never seen it. Are as you? Far, as far as as you know, comedies of that era, it's amazing. Man, it, I saw that when I, I think before I was ten years old, I saw that, like numerous times on TV. Maybe it's because you know, it's probably because of my grandparents. So you guys are not you. you I would. Uh, your reviews of uh, issue 500 of the Avengers. I wow, you're not fan. Well, you you a little bit more so, but Dave was not a fan of the art. Neither of you were like glowing well, about I, it. I like the art, but I thought it was intentionally so. I thought it was very very dark, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's intentionally so. So you got to you know you got to take that for what it's worth. But it's a little off-putting because of it. It's 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 you know you're not comfortable reading it, uh, and I don't think you're supposed to be. But yeah, you know <laughs> exactly. But, but that's the whole thing. Is it's just it's it, the artwork is a little intense without being graphic. Mm. So it's it's, mm. it's different. The sacrifices I make to miss shows. Rat catcher. Have some you cheese, know. rat. <laughs> I thought that was a good clip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a later show, I, I uh, Scott, I explained how I caught the rat by, um, I I was like uh, Inspector Clouseau because the first time I tried to catch it, <laughs> I went in there with a uh, with a big giant shop vac, like a wet dry vac. I was going to suck it up through the hose and get it into the bag <laughs> or in, into the shop vac because I got a big five gallon one. So I set it outside the room, turned it on, and I walked in with the hose. You know, with the door like half closed, you know, closed on, on on it. And then as I work in there, I suck up the shower curtain. <laughs> and like the rats running around around the toilet and stuff. So I'm like I'm pulling the curtain out and then it goes to the floor and I suck up the bath mat. <laughs> I'm like, God damn it. I'm stepping on the bath mat, pulling the thing off. And then the rat jumps up onto the uh, he ch- he jumps up onto the onto like the bathtub, and then I I try to lunge for him, 
And then he goes into the bathtub, and now I'm, like, tripping on the hose. And finally, I'm like, get this hose out of here. <laughs> Give me a container I could drop over the top of him. Something with a lid. This is ridiculous. You know, so then I caught him, along with the loofah. I'm, I'm picturing this rat being, like, going, like, come on, come on, I'm over here, come on. <laughs> and he lunges from him, and he ducks out of the way, and he suck up the shower curtain. Come on, I'm over, I'm over see, here now. <laughs> see, I'm, I'm picturing, like, when they have the, the set of stairs, and then they have, like, two doors up top and two on the bottom. <laughs> and, I'm you know, the rat goes in one door, Bill goes up the stairs, goes in the door, then the rat comes out of the store <laughs> downstairs. That's exactly what I'm picturing. That's it, exactly. <laughs> Except I'm wearing boots going, cha, cha, cha. Who's bringing us in? All right. I guess it's me. <laughs> he said all right. Hello and welcome to Back to the Vince. I brought it in, <laughs> but I got no book. Finish so bringing it in. Finish bringing it in. Come on. You did a good job. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Dr. Nick. Wait, no, I'm Dr. Bill. And with me are the other... With me is Paul and Scott. Hi, fellas. Hi, everybody. Ooh, what's Not that Scott? thing? <laughs> just just chuckle. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Hello. How's it going? Good. It's it's Scott. How do you expect me to get up this early, Gardner? Oh my God. And it's Bill. Yeah, I, I got it even we earlier. I, I set my alarm for. You said 7:30 recording. I hadn't finished reading your book yet. I fell asleep reading your book last night, so I was like, "All right, I have to get up a little bit early to read the book and to write up my synopsis." So I set my alarm for 6:30, but I actually ended up waking up at six. So I, I don't know how because we stayed up last night. My wife and I watching TV until, I don't know, it was midnight or one, something like that. So, yeah, I don't know why I'm so uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. That won't last long. So <laughs> we should probably jump right into this. <laughs> all right. So this is, you know, it's it's rare that we can all get together, the three of us nowadays. So I'm just happy to do that, even if we have to squeeze it into a, you know, a square peg into a round hole to get it done. But, uh, you know. Just for anybody listening, understand that uh, we've been talking like for over an hour, and you're going to get like <laughs> two minutes of that. But you know, well, I've been I've only been talking for like eight minutes because, well, I thought this was supposed <laughs> to be in the evening. And I just keep hearing Led Zeppelin <laughs> doing in the evening every time you say that. Oh, but, oh uh, when you said square pegs a minute ago, yeah. you guys aware of the Star Trek uh, tie into the Square Pegs TV show? No. Scott? I don't think I ever watched the Square Pegs TV show, so that becomes. Really I easy. was vaguely aware that there was a show called Square Pegs, and that's about the extent of my knowledge of that. So, well, yeah. it, it was in 1982 to 1983. Uh, it had Sarah Jessica Parker in it, not the Star Wars. I was just going to say, didn't it have Sir? Yeah, I thought so. It okay, had Jake yeah. Getz, Gertz, who was the uh, girl that played the uh, vamp, uh, the female. Um, slash vampire interest in Lost Boys. Okay. 
And it had, as one of the other kids, Merritt Buttrick. Oh, okay. I did not know that. Okay. Because there's a line in there that I always remember where they, because they had Swatch Watches. Remember the Swatch Watch? I do. And synchronized Swatches. So that's, you said square pegs in my mind went down that rabbit hole. It's funny that you say that it had somebody that was in The Lost Boys because Merritt Buttrick was in the other big vampire franchise, or to my mind, the other big vampire franchise of the 80s, which was Fright Night. He was in Fright Night 2. Really? Was, uh, one of Charlie, yeah, he was Charlie Brewster's buddy. Huh. Did you ever see Didn't... Fright Night 2? I did, but not as many times as I saw the first one. So. I only saw it once, and I remember right. being yeah. a little underwhelmed by it. It's good. Not that it's, it was bad, kind of a, but it just was kind of like you know, do we need? Yeah. Did we need it? Is kind of the way I walked away thinking. No, no, we totally didn't need it. But I, I consider it kind of a an underrated. It's like kind of like an underrated classic because that it's kind of a weird movie because I remember waiting forever for that movie to come out, and it was one of those ones I. I I've kind of forgotten a bit of the history now, but it was one of those ones that got made and then like the company that made it went under or had some sort of big problems or something. So I don't think I could be wrong. I don't think it ever came out theatrically. I think it was one of those one like today we'd call it direct to video, but back then mm. it was like, it just got hung up somehow it was done and then just got hung up. So by the time it actually did eventually, you know, come out, it was basically straight to video. At, at least that's how I remember it. Yeah, I don't think it was but, ever uh, released in the theater. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I could be wrong about that, but I don't think it ever came out theatrically. But I, I, I really like the second one. I enjoyed that one a lot for for a lot of. It's not as good as the first one, um, but it has its moments. You know, I mean, because what's his name? Uh, uh, the guy that played Charlie, I can't remember his name, that actor's name, but you know, Charlie's just, I think William Ragsdale. Yeah. He and, uh, and Roddy McDowell are just as good and just as earnest as, as they were in the first one. Mm. And that carries a lot of weight. It's just, you know, there's a lot more going on in the second one. Um, you know, some things don't quite jibe with the first one. And then to me, the, the, the one big thing that brings it down was there was a, a sequence with, uh, with the, his psychologist that really goes like completely overboard into ridiculous camp. And that really knocks that movie down a big old score peg, you know, but other than that, I, I really kind of enjoy the second one a lot, but anyway, <laughs> I don't know how we got on that, but hmm. well, <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. Merritt Buttrick. Yeah. He was in the, he was a, a, a buddy of Charlie's in that movie. And I, it, as to my memory, I think it was right towards the end of his life. So he he doesn't look good in the movie, but it kind of plays into what's going on with his character because he was um, under the thrall of of you know the female oh. vampire you know villain of the movie. So it kind of plays into that, you know, him looking kind of um, you know blood drained and and that's you know because you know he was literally dying you know while he was making that movie at least that's that was my memory of it or whatever but yeah he's he's in that and he was pretty good in it too i, I liked him i thought he was a good actor it really made me sad when he uh when he passed away 
Yeah, he was only 29. Uh, he was. I didn't realize he was born in Gainesville, Florida. Florida. Oh, really? Yep. He was only 29 when he died. Yeah. Wow. Man, that's that's so sad. To the my memory, that, I don't uh, think we knew. What's that? I was gonna say the movie that fits your description of that, where it's like it, it seems to like nobody seems to care about it, or if you do hear something, it's kind of negative from people who probably didn't even see it. Uh, that I enjoy very much is Predator Two. Yes, mm. yeah, I love mm-hmm. this. I like the second one better than I like the first one, which I know is heresy to a lot of people. But I, uh, yeah, you know, I won't now, go that Granted, far. I have not <laughs> seen the second one in a long, long time. But you know, the, the you know the first time and, and every time I've ever seen it, I was always like, I like this one so much better. But um, I recently rewatched because well, I picked it up somewhere for I don't know, like a dollar or something. I got um, Predator, the first one on uh, on Blu-ray, and and rewatched it. I hadn't seen it, it in time, and it was you know it's, it still holds out. I think it's a great movie. Um, I don't think Scott knows about the song. Probably what song? Not. If it bleeds, if it bleeds we, we can kill it. It's using the trees. Oh, there's a whole <laughs> musical. There's Predator the musical. If you, uh, a guy, oh, that's funny. If you if you ever get the time, if you search back into the uh, archives, the two true two true freaks archives, you'll find that Bill and I did a commentary on Predator, and at the end of the commentary, <laughs> we play that song. Yeah. <laughs> but I, anyway, I think part of the reason I liked the second one was that I remember when the uh, when the Dark Horse. Uh, miniseries came out which was kind of a sequel to oh, the that's, first that's what I was going to bring up and I don't know if we've ever covered that because that takes place in the city and it's got Dutch's yeah. brother yeah that's my only problem with it is that, you know, I, that's yeah. one of the things where I feel like Predator 2 was an imp- basically I, I always felt like Predator 2 the film was kind of an adaptation like a very loose adaptation of that mini but mm-hmm. one of the things I liked that it did that I felt was a big old improvement was that it was completely removed from the first movie because it didn't – that's what I liked about it is it didn't suffer from sequelitis in the sense of, you know, it's bringing back the same characters or, you know, I mean, Arnold's not in it, none of that shit. So I liked that it was, it was a completely different entity from the first movie. It's just it had the same type of monster. I, I thought that was a very – ballsy and and clever way to play it because you don't see a lot of sequels that do that sort of thing you know usually they they feel the need to to hit all the same beats or to at the very least bring back as many of the original cast as they can the problem with predator was everybody was freaking dead you know, except for Arnold, and they didn't bring back Arnold. They don't even reference him, and I thought, wow, that's really ballsy to do that. And and I I always thought it paid off really well. I mean, you know, other people's mileage obviously varied because I don't hear a lot of loving things said about it, but I I liked it. Plus, I thought it was an interesting way to go with um, oh, what's his name? Danny Glover. Um, Danny Glover. Danny Glover, because, you know, he's not by any stretch of the imagination an action hero or anything like this. He was just like this regular schlub that all this shit happens to. And again, I liked that. And he wasn't even a regular schlub like in the Bruce Willis mold where he's a regular schlub that has to step up. He's a regular schlub that just I mean, he's out of breath. He's not he's not made for this shit at all. 
yet he still ends up, you know, winning in the end. And I thought, wow, that, you know, again, I thought was really ballsy in, in a, in a, you know, a really different way to go. So I don't know, but yeah, yeah I, like yeah, you think he, his, uh, his character would have been more used to situations like that since he's been partnered with Riggs and he's so close to retirement. Oh wait, no, sorry, wrong franchise. So he's too old for this shit. Well, from from the Lethal Weapon connection, though, you also have uh, what's his name, Gary Busey, in it, who plays the usual Gary Busey psycho. Yeah, I totally forgot he was even in it. The the one I remember that's in it is um, uh, Bill Paxton, who I I just I adored Bill Paxton. I thought he was he was really. I, that's another death that that hit me hard when mm. he passed away. Because uh, I really liked him, I thought he was a really good actor and just just an all around really nice guy. Um, I've actually been watching a lot of stuff with him in it right now because I've been back on a Titanic kick again. And he and uh, Cameron, James Cameron, were really good friends. And there was this one particular expedition um, that I got kind of fascinated with because I, I read this one book. Um, and it was a guy who was on the expedition with Cameron and with Paxton. He was talking a lot about this one expedition and all this footage that they shot. And I'm like, I don't remember ever seeing this. So I had to hunt it down and find, you know, the, the, the video, you know, the documentaries that were released about this one expedition to see the footage he was actually talking about. And there's a couple of different videos about the same expedition. And, um, Paxton is obviously in them because he was there, but then one of them was actually hosted by Paxton. It was, you know, really, it was actually really cheesy. You know, this one documentary was like so bad and so cheesy and he was the host. And then there was another one where it was just more of a straight, like national geo type of, you know, really good documentary. And then, you know, uh, Bill Paxton is just kind of there in the background because he was actually there. But, uh, but yeah, he's been on my mind a lot lately. I I really like that guy. All right, one last thing, and then we can get back to the show. Sure. So, so, and this is no disrespect to Bill Paxton or his family, but if I was Bill Paxton, I would have them put on my tombstone, game over, man, game over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I don't know that they didn't. <laughs> you know, yeah. For all I know, maybe they just, didn't. Just so if people came to my grave, they would, if they know the reference, they would get a chuckle. You know, for a time... Um, the uh, the talking tombstones were were a thing. It was like a brief mm. fad in in tombstones. I, a, a friend of mine, his dad actually worked with, um, you know, like uh, whatever you call it, internment or whatever, you know, for for caring for the dead. Right. And we were we had this conversation once I can remember where he was talking about the flash in the pan fad of of the talking tombstone. Oh, that would be great. Actually, I would be like, get off my face. <laughs> and, you know, that would be, again, like you said, no disrespect intended to, you know, Paxton or his family. But that would be cool to go to Bill Paxton's grave and, and his tombstone did his famous, you know, that famous line of his. I think that'd be really funny. He seems like that he that was the kind of sense of humor he had, like he would really appreciate that, too, if you know what I mean, that, you know, that mm-hmm. dark sense of humor. So, yeah, that, that would be funny. Oh, maybe mine should be, what's in the box? <laughs> Mine's just going to be, hey, how's it going? <laughs> I just find it fascinating that there was a fad in tombstones. <laughs> right? <laughs> just, just the whole thought of that is just mind-boggling mm. to me. 
Well, maybe like in in the movie Firefly, uh, they'll have uh, they'll have the uh, the holograms that pop up. You know, you could do a hologram of yourself. That would be creepy. I think. I think that would be really creepy. <laughs> so comic books, huh? Yeah. How about them comics? Comic book, schmomic book. All right. Which one do we want to do first? On we typically let's, do let's, the uh, Marvel first. No, right? let's do Bills first. Uh, <laughs> hey, what's in the box? Hey, that's why I had all this other extra talk because I had uh, no box, no book, no book. <laughs> You got no box. I can't ask you what's in it. I don't got one. I was twelve hours off my schedule. What do we need to go to military time so you know when the when the get togethers are? Shut up. If it was military time I would have thought it was seven thirty. What would have been on time? If uh, yeah, that's right. Maybe we should go to military time. Yeah, you should have said uh twenty no, see I got the wrong time. Uh, it would have been nineteen thirty. Yeah. Right. Then I would have Yeah. Yeah. What Maybe I'll said. start responding in military time. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so we'll do the Marvel first, I guess, because that's the traditional way of doing it. And I have the Marvel, and I have issue 34 of, I think it's volume three of the Silver yes. Surfer. Yes. It reminds uh, me, I still need to search for your, look through my Silver Surfer stuff by extras. For yes, you, you do. Yes, you do. Hey, I need some, too. Yeah, well, get on the get on the waiting list behind me. <laughs> oh, you need some Silver Surfers too? Yeah, well, I mean, we'll talk about this as we okay. go along, but this is one of those series that every time I, I've ever, and I've read precious few of them, but every time I do read an issue of it, I always think the same thing, which is, you know, I really need to read this series one of these days, because I always invariably end up enjoying them. And so recently I made the decision that when they pop up again for cheap, you know, like when I'm digging through 50 cent bins or whatever, I'm going to start nabbing them because I've been passing them up for years. And, you know, I've got a pretty decent collection of them now, but I mean, I'm still missing a ton of them, including the issue that we're about to cover, because this one, as I am led to believe, is kind of a pricey issue. So. Yeah, I, I, this yeah. is one of the ones I'm missing, and I've been picking them up little by little. They haven't been on like the priority list where I run right to the Silver Surfer section, right? Uh, but right. they are, you know, when I see them, I grab one here and there, and I have, I would say, I have the majority of the series, but I don't have, you know, there's a significant number that I still need, uh, and this is one of them. This is actually the first issue in the trade rebirth of Thanos uh, that I picked up for, I think, three dollars somewhere, the trade. Uh, and the last time we went on vacation, I actually took this book with me and that's the, and I was reading it, which was what made me want to take it out today and cover it. Um, Silver Surfer has always been a fascinating character for me. I've, I've always really enjoyed his character and the way, the different ways he's been portrayed have been interesting. Although the more recent Dan Slott, Mike Aldred series, I had started to read and, that kind of left me cold right away. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the 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 real ones I'd like to get is the, you know, volume one. And I have of the, I believe, 18 issues that there were, I would say I probably have like maybe half of them. Uh, but I'd love to, to get a whole, you know, complete that series. Anyway, this issue is the first issue with uh, Jim Starlin returning. 
uh, if you know, well, not returning, but him taking over this series and bringing back the character of Thanos, which is why it would be the first issue in the Rebirth of Thanos mini uh, trade. Uh, the story is written by Jim Starlin, art by Ron Lim, inks by Tom Christopher, uh, letters are by Ken Bruzanak, colors by Tom Vincent, edited by Craig Anderson, and the editor-in-chief was Tom DeFalco. The book came out in February, or it's cover dated February of 1990, so this did come out while I was not involved in comic collecting. It was a dollar. The cover shows the Silver Surfer heading towards, kind of towards the reader, but more at an angle. Uh, and then in the background, we have a giant image of Thanos, you know, with his uh, fist clenched. Uh, and it says, call him Thanos, call him dead death and then on the cover a little bit of a misdirection but it says first issue of a new era of greatness uh so you know they're trying to get the people's attention to say hey first issue uh but it's really not but it is because it's jim starlin's first issue the story opens up with the surfer you know flying through space and you know kind of being a little uh introspective the title of the story is even demigods must dream he lands on a lifeless world and sets up his surfboard, I think much like a, a real surfer would, you know, like kind of standing up in, in the sand, uh, and lays down and falls asleep. And when he wakes up, there's a giant skull-shaped temple uh, that's, you know, off in the, slightly in the distance, uh, which he makes his way to, and trying to figure out what, you know, what, where this structure came from, and, you know, it looks so evil. And he, go, he walks in basically through the mouth of the skull, uh, and when he does, you know, there's, I guess, wall art of people, you know, in, in uh, agony, uh, and there's some people praying, and then there's these two creatures who, drawn by Jim, uh, drawn, drawn by Ron Lim, but very Jim Stalin-esque, there's like a rat guy and what looks to be like a rotting corpse guy. Oh, uh, it's a rat guy! Oh. <laughs> See, this is, this is to connect it to you, Bill. Uh, and they're, they're carrying a, a trunk with a giant lock on the front of it, a giant padlock. Uh, and they don't seem to notice the surfer standing there watching them. And they're talking about uh, how they're bringing this crate to their mistress. And, you know, they lead you to believe that there's someone inside there. Uh, and the surfer, you know, is kind of wondering what's going on and then comes to the conclusion that it's all a dream. But then he... Uh, he decides to follow up anyway, and he follows these two dudes, and uh, they're told to open the casket, and he finds out that their mistress is Lady Death, uh, and when they open the trunk, uh, a ghostly image of Thanos comes out of it, and it says, I am free, free at last, uh, and the, the whole idea, you know, the whole image and presence of this thing really disturbs the surfer, uh, and they discuss the, uh, or the two servants are telling the Thanos essence that their mistress wants him to help with an imbalance in the universe. So we'll stop right there to say, basically, this is the mission of Thanos to eliminate half the people or half the lives in the world that we eventually see in Infinity War movie. Uh, it's not quite as uh, benevolent as the way it's presented in the movie, because he's doing it on behalf of Lady Death. But anyway, moving forward, uh, they acknowledge that they can see the surfer where they've been ignoring him the whole time. Uh, and 
you know, Thanos says, let him test my power, and Surfer is thrown uh, from this temple. Uh, and then he's out in the open again, and there's all of a sudden thousands and thousands of people, alien people, uh, that are gathered around. And uh, he they're headed towards uh, what looks to be the, uh, was it Mount Doom from Lord of the Rings? Uh, mm-hmm. And the yeah. surfer goes there, and, and there's a female alien atop, and she's holding an infant uh, aloft and ready to throw him into the volcano, and she does so. He, you know, just speeds up and flies into the into the volcano and catches the uh, infant and is uh, cradling it and bringing it out and comments about how innocent it looks, and then it immediately just kind of transforms into a... Uh, you know, a, a, a demon, demonic creature. Kind of reminds me of Jack, Jack Jack from The Incredibles. Yeah, I was going to say, just reminds me of Ultra. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. So he he's starts smothering the, the surfer, and the surfer, surfer has to fight out of it, and he lands back into the, the dirt of this world, and all the people and everything is gone. And then he goes on a little soliloquy, and talking about how it may be a premonition, whatever. And then all of a sudden in the back he hears, perhaps it was a premonition. And there's Thanos sitting on his, uh, sitting on his th- floating throne chair, uh, saying, you know, he introduces himself. He says, my name is Thanos. And it says, to be continued next issue. Uh, this is great stuff. I think the artwork is beautiful in here. I think the story is really compelling. It, it flows along really well, but it, it doesn't have that, oh, I can read it in five minutes feeling, even though it's not, you know, overly complicated to read. Uh, I, I just think this is awesome. I, you know, it's a great start to what ends up being a whole great storyline, you know, with the rebirth of Thanos and then eventually the uh, Infinity Quest and then on to the Infinity Gauntlet. So, mm-hmm. you know, Jim Starlin had a way of just putting together a storyline. And this is, you know, Scott, this goes way back to when you and I used to talk about Cosmic Marvel, and and I used to defend it when you weren't so crazy about it. And and Jim Stalin has so much to do with my wanting to defend that because I think he's the one who really – Kirby laid the groundwork. Kirby gave him the the foundation, and then – Stalin went further with it and took it and he, he told these elaborate stories that are storylines to themselves but lead on to bigger things and then when you read you know the uh, the warlock stories of the you know of the 70s and early 80s and and reading this silver surfer and and the infinity stuff from the 90s uh, you know the guy had a, a tremendous cosmic imagination and when pe- paired with an artist of this nature uh, just you know you, you couldn't beat these kind of stories Oh yeah, this this is really good stuff. I really enjoyed this. It, it's funny, you know, I remember very distinctly when Infinity Gauntlet, the the series, you know, the the event came out, and you know all the hype and the excitement around it and everything, and and I was all in on that because um, it had a real. It, it, it had a feel of almost being like like Marvel's Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, it was George Perez. It was you know it was affecting the entire line of of Marvel. You know, all the heroes were going to participate in it and all that. But only being kind of vaguely knowledgeable about Thanos. I, I'd read you know a, a couple of comics with him in it. 
Um, probably my biggest touchstone with Thanos at that time would have been the death of Captain Marvel, which I still don't know why back in the day I even got that because I, I never liked Captain Marvel. I, I didn't really know too much about him. But, you know, somehow or other, I had glommed onto that graphic novel when it came out. I think because it was one of the first. Uh, it was the first. Was it the first? Yep. I, yeah. I think that's probably why I got it, because it was the first. It had all the heroes, you know, on the cover and all that. And, you know, it was the death of and all that. But, you know, Thanos plays a, a pretty big part in that, you know, at the end of that story. So I, I was familiar with who Thanos was, but I also knew that he was dead. So I remember kind of wondering, like, all right, what ha- I, something obviously had happened between, you know, the death of Captain Marvel and um you know infinity gauntlet number one but i you know all this time i've always ever just kind of wondered about it but i've never really looked into it like how how did he come back what happened and in right here you know with the surfer's premonition you kind of see the the seeds of what's going on uh you know of him uh you know being resurrected and all so it's interesting i i really would like to read this whole saga because i've never read it you know i've just dove straight into infinity gauntlet um you know kind of blind but you know really enjoyed that too and i can't remember now it's been a long time since i've read infinity gauntlet i can't remember if it if it recaps this or or not no it really doesn't it just kind of jumps into the story and it's so immediately immersive that you don't mind Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, but they don't really give you the background of, you know, Thanos and, you know, how he got a hold of the uh, the different gemstones and all of that. They just basically give you that that he's got them and they're making him, you know, basically godlike in his power, which is kind of, you know, a repetitive thing, because early on in Thanos's uh, existence, they had him get the cosmic cube, which made him, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, godlike at that time. Right had to defeat him, and I know you that that was on your reading list at one time. So I know you've gone through those. Uh, right, but but it, you know it, it's almost like I'm thinking if I'm Jim Starlin, even though they let him write the conclusion of the character, uh, I think you know now it's whatever it is, almost ten years later, uh, and he's probably saying he's such a great character, I got to bring him back. Right, <laughs> you know? yeah, because yeah. mm-hmm. there's just so well, much I, more I can do also, with him. Also, you know, as a kid. You know, there was that, you know, when when Thanos was killed initially, it happened between two annuals. There was the there was the Marvel Avengers and annual. And Avengers, and, yeah. Is that what it was? Marvel, Marvel two, two and one? one? Yeah. So there was well, the one. I mean, was, he was just turned to stone. So right. he wasn't really dead. He was a big ELO fan. <laughs> exactly. But I had I had one, but not the other. The one where he actually was turned to stone at the end of it, I think that's the one I didn't have. So I'm pretty I, I sure had that's like the Marvel part... two in one. I think that's the second yeah. part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, yeah. So I had yeah. So I had the uh, Avengers one then. So I had like half the story. So again, you know, I, 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 you know, having some knowledge of the character, but not the whole story type of thing. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed this, and um, yeah, I, I really like Jim Starlin. You know, I've got a lot of respect for the guy. He's got you know just an incredible imagination and everything, and, and you know has really come up with some really cool um, you know concepts and stories and characters over the years. Um, and then Ron Lim, you know, I, I, he's not one of those guys that that pops up in my mind very often, but whenever I see his work, I'm always very impressed with it because he's he's got 
Um, you know, he's obviously got a lot of George Perez influence in his art, but, you know, he's not slavish to to Perez either. You know, he has his own distinct style. It, it's mm-hmm. like Perez and somebody else. And I'm, I'm blanking on who I think the other the other artist is. He, his artwork reminds me of another artist. but I'm, I'm Maybe a touch of Michael Golden. Maybe a little bit golden, a little bit um, – what's the guy's name? Tom Lyle? A little bit Tom Lyle, I think, as well, if well, you remember Tom in, Lyle. In this particular I, I, issue, I, think... I think you could see a lot of influence of Starlin. Well, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, absolutely. Well, what's cool about this is that they're, you know the credits are saved to the very last page. You know, the big reveal with Thanos, that's where the credits are. So I dove into this. And I even went back to the cover. I'm like, did they say? Because sometimes, you know, they would say on the cover who was, you know, who uh, the the creators were. But this one does not. So, you know, you don't get the creators until the end. But as I dove in right away, I, you know, I obviously realized it was uh, it was Ron Lim. But as I was reading this, I was like, this really feels like Starlin. Is this Starlin? Of course, you get to the end. And yes, it is Starlin. So I thought that was really cool. But yeah, I, I I like his his writing. I like his stuff. So yeah, this this really intrigued me to, to that much more want to really dive into this series and and read it at some point, especially this saga right here to see how you know the the Infinity Gauntlet built you know from the beginning because I, I I've just never read it. I was reading these as they were coming out while I was in the service. It was hard to track them down as I went from place to place, and sometimes I get behind. But I've got – I had uh, – and then when I got out of the service, it was still going on for a little bit. Um, I think I've read all well up into the hundreds, maybe the hundred and teens. Um, but, yeah, this is – yeah, I was getting this at, at as it came out, loving it all the way. In the hundreds, George Perez actually took over as the writer of the book. And I have to say, you know, all due respect to Mr. Perez and the greatest artist of all time, I was never really that wild about his writing. Mm. So, But Jim Starlin, on the other hand, uh, you know, I'm, I'm torn on Jim Starlin because I actually really, really enjoy his artwork. Uh, but I enjoy his writing even more. I think he's a really, really good artist. I think he's a great writer. So, you know, this this is the beginning of like there's certain people like George Perez writing with somebody else drawing. You feel like, uh, can we switch that? Can we go the other <laughs> way around? But Jim Starlin, when he writes and somebody else draws it, I'm OK with that, even though he's a really good artist. It's George Perez and Vinnie Coletta. What? <laughs> I think we've seen that combo at some point or another. Uh, no, not, I mean, not, not like, writing and drawing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, we, I think we've seen like, drawing no, and inking. I think no, we've seen no, it. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll rush to to Perez's defense only to say that um, I really enjoyed him as the writer of Wonder Woman. Uh, at least I think he was. Now I could be wrong about that, but in the begin in the beginning of the reboot of Wonder Woman post Crisis, I know he was the artist, but wasn't he also the writer? Or am I, I wrong? I think about you may that? be right. I think you may be right, and and that does uh, come to my memory as a pretty well written, you know, storyline. 
so yeah, you know what? I'll 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 take back a excuse me. I'll take back a little bit of my criticism and say, you know, it's he's never going to stand out to me as a writer the way he does as an artist. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's a bad writer. It just right. means it just means you know he's a great artist, and maybe he's just a good good writer. Right. Was he a great man? Was he a good artist? You, know, you, you find it's funny, because, <laughs> but you find that the creative element that these people have uh, has to go on both sides. And I think, you know, the artists, by their very nature, at least comic book artists, that they're storytellers. So they do have, you know, some writing ability in them. In fact, how many writers do you hear about who you know, have artistic ability, got into the industry to want to be an artist, but then ended up being a writer. Uh, you know, you see it a lot. Uh, Jimmy Palmiotti is actually a really good artist, but he ends up, you know, his reputation is more built on writing. Steve Englehart got into the industry as a, uh, you know, because he wanted to be an artist, ended up being a writer. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of people of that nature. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the storytelling gene goes both ways on them right so it's it's you know it, it does explain a lot for people like i i remember when they announced oh john byrne is going to start writing the fantastic four and i really wasn't familiar with what john byrne could or could not do as a writer you know i knew him as an artist on the x-men and i was you know thrilled with the work he did there but i did not have any idea what you know what to anticipate from him as a as a writer and then you know i, I gotta say i was kind of blown away by the way he brought them back to their roots and, and did so much with them uh and you know it's just something i never had any clue about and it really kind of opened my eyes to you know when they talked about him and and chris claremont co-plotting the x-men it really you know made me start to think well how, you know he probably had a lot more to do with that storytelling than i realized hmm Right. So it's it's just interesting. You know, it's an interesting thing when you start looking. You know, we, we talk about how you don't want to know how the sausage is made very often. In this instance, I think you do because I think it's fascinating. You know, the the way the the collaboration goes between writer and artist. And it's something we've hit on, and uh, I know you know we we recently hit on it on our uh, Dave Michelini episode. Uh, you know, the collaboration between writer and artist and how it works, and you know to what extent they might lean on each other. So. That's that's all I have to say on the subject, but I just wanted to hit that. <laughs> I was it got me to wondering, uh, you know, whatever happened to Ron Lim? I, w I was hoping he was still around. He is still around. He's uh, his his credits, uh, at least according to Mike's Amazing World, kind of start to to uh, space out and kind of peter out, um, you know, in the in the mid to to late twenty teens. But he's still out there, still working on stuff. But uh, I'm looking at his wiki entry here, and I'm shocked to find out that he's only three years older than me. I'm like, wow, really? Because it's it's wild that for me to think about, you know, some of the stuff that he was working on, you know, back in the day, you know, like Silver Surfer, you know, and and here's a guy who's only just a couple years older than I am, you know, doing this stuff. Because I always tend to think of the, you know, the comics creators as, as being significantly older than me, and you know, here he's really not. But uh, yeah, he's got quite the body of work. I mean, the guy's the guy's done a lot of really cool stuff. And I, I as I look at the list here, I've actually have read a lot of what he's done over the years. So 
Yeah. But yeah, I, I like his stuff. He's a good artist. He's got he's got a very clean line. Ron, yeah, if you I, happen I agree to be with listening, what you kind to, of, oh, sorry. I just say if he's listening, he needs to change up his picture on uh, Wikipedia because that is one creepy picture, dude. <laughs> what were you going to say, Paul? I was going to say I like how, and we've seen this before in other artists, how his artwork can be kind of reminiscent of other artists or make you think of other artists, but never appear to be, you know, that he's out and out copying them. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that I, when, when an artist has ability to kind of just maneuver his own style a little bit when he feels like it's uh, necessary. Oh, and just uh, by the way, Ron is a couple of years younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> As are most things, you know, elephants, sperm whales, dinosaurs. Sorry. <laughs> just keep it in mind, Bill. Keep, keep just, you know, when I get there, you'll you'll remember this. What? And when it, you become a dinosaur and you're going to step on me? When they use me for fossil fuel. <laughs> so I guess uh, I'm going to rate this. I think the cover is awesome. I think I'm pretty sure it is the cover. It is it's recolored, but I'm pretty sure it's the same cover on the Rebirth of Thanos uh, uh, trade that I have. Uh, I think it, it's you know there is the little misdirection of first issue, uh, but I, I'll forgive that because it is kind of the first issue of a whole new you know direction for the series. So I, I can mm-hmm. kind of I can kind of just turn a blind eye to that. It would definitely catch my eye on the newsstand or in the comic book store and make me think, "Oh, I like this. I want to tr- check this out." Uh so I'm going to say an A, a solid A on the cover. Uh, not quite an A+, plus, but an A. Uh the interior art, I'm going to say pretty much the same thing. I think the interior art is really solid. I think the storytelling is good. Uh there's a couple of points where I feel like I could just use slightly more detail, but I'm kind of cool with that. Uh, and I think it really just does everything I want it to do. So I'm going to say an A on the interior art, uh, especially that last splash page. I think that's, you know, like, oh, where's the next issue? Where's the next issue? Uh, so I'm going to say an A on the art, and I'm going to say an A on the story. I'm going A all around on this one. I just think this is a really hey. top-level top book. There's a reason why this book is hard to find and it's not just based on the fact that it's you know the start of this whole storyline i think it's also just the quality of the book this is really good a's all around so uh all right so the cover what did it okay so you want to have your cover to be catchy because you want to sell it now if they had gone a different route and not put thanos on the cover and then you read as you're reading through, you figure out this is Thanos. Would that have been a better reveal in this for the story instead of putting them like, could you have changed the cover? Well, I'm going to give the cover an A for what it is. But I was just thinking about if you change the cover to allow the gradual reveal, because now you've got Thanos in your head, you know, as you go in, into the book and you're and you're expecting him. If, if you he, know who Thanos is. It's been almost 10 years True. since he's appeared in comics. True. Yeah, so, and with that being said, uh, the interior art, um, yeah, I've, I've loved this as it was coming out. It's, it's, it's good stuff. I'm, I'm going to be Chris Farley here. Yeah, you remember when the Thanos came back? And yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's also going to be an A. 
And the story with for what it leads into and where it goes is uh, and even just the story here is 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 an A as well. Scott, what say you? I think it's one of those things that's been kind of lost uh, over time. You're lost in modern comics. This idea of your your big wow moment of the issue being spoiled right there on the cover. Um, you know, I, I've always been really amused when you'd get comics that would be like, you know, can you guess our mystery villain? Or, you know, mm-hmm. can you, you know, wait till you see the shocking last page, you know, and it's spoiled right there on the cover, you know, the mystery villain, you know, the Joker's right on the cover or, you know, the, the mystery you know, the big thing at the end of the issue is Superman accidentally eats a kryptonite banana or whatever. And it's right there on the cover, you know? So I, I like that. And I can only think it's because today they can get away with, you know, having like a generic cover, but a big wow moment, you know, in the issue or at the end of the issue, because social media is out there to, you know, oh, my God, did you guys pick up the latest issue of Dirt Man? Because this happens at the end of it, you know, and then everybody's got to rush out and, and grab it or whatever. But back during this time, you know, you didn't have a lot of advanced knowledge or a lot of advanced solicitation or whatever. You know, a lot of times it was still the power of that cover. You know, it had to grab you. It had to jump out at you on the stands and say, buy me. And that's what this cover does. I mean, it, especially if you knew who Thanos was, you know, if you if you remembered him from, you know, 10 years prior or, or, or whatever. But also, even without that, it's just, it's just a freaking cool cover. You know, you've got, you know, a, a really awesome image of the ooh, this guy looks, you know, he looks scary. If you had no idea who Thanos was, just the whole look of him and then you'll know, call him Thanos, call him death. He, he just looks like, ooh, this looks interesting and. You know, the uh, the little starburst there, you know, first issue of a new, you know, that doesn't hurt at all. You know, that's that's in that Stan Lee school. So it really works as a cover. So, yeah, I, I think straight up it's a it's an A cover, uh, you know, for a lot of different reasons. Um, my only real problem with the art you know, cover included is uh, I don't know that the coloring works entirely. Um, some of it's a little bit weirdly colored. It's a little bit um I don't know. It's just it's just kind of odd to my eye. Uh, uh, maybe it's a little bit too bright or a little too happy or something. I mean, I, I don't want super dark, but just, you know, the nature of the story, the nature of the character, I think, lends to a, just a, 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 I don't know, a different color palette uh, than what this actually has. And I don't think the printing process of the day, I don't know if it's the paper. I I think it's a combination of the paper type that they were using at the time and the the limitations of the printing process they were doing doesn't help the art. Um, I think a lot of times the the blacks and the inks are are kind of bleeding. And you see that a lot in like... um, in the castle, in the interiors, where I think they were trying to go a little darker, um, and then just the the blacks are kind of muddying up the artwork a bit. I still think, don't get me wrong, I still think the art's you know phenomenal. I still think it's a, um, but I'm just noticing that I, I think a more modern reprinting with with modern um, 
coloring and uh, printing techniques would, would make this really pop and, and make it that much cleaner than it looks here because there's there's a bit of it that looks a little bit muddy. Well, um, you know, Hero and I discussed this last night when we did a show. We were talking about the coloring of Sleepwalker and because that was the one issue we were doing was either 90 or 92 and we were talking about, I think I remembered a few years later in the 90s, Marvel bought, I think, Malibu Comics to get their coloring process. Right. Right. So this yeah. would be before that time and indicative of uh, of that era. Yeah, I, th- I think they understood that they had a, a, a problem where they had reached the limits of, you know, of the printing process as they knew it at that time, you know, based on art becoming more like this over time, you know, to where there was more detail and more that the artists wanted to be doing um, that didn't make that transition from, you know, from their board to the final printed product. And and that's kind of a shame because um, I, I do think this is really beautiful stuff. I, I think Ron Lim's a, a hell of an artist. And I think he's an incredibly detailed artist. You know, it's evident on the page with all the, you know, all the alien, you know, just that, horde of aliens you know it's it's incredible and it goes you know all the way back and everything but again you know as you look at it a lot of time you know the the uh the blacks i think they just kind of bleed and it and i don't know it just doesn't service the art um you know on the printed page but but anyway, um, I, I'm just going to echo Paul. A's all around. I really enjoyed this, and, and it really whet my appetite for wanting to now, you know, go back and, and read this uh, build up to uh, to Infinity Gauntlet. And I'm and I'm way overdue to reread the Infinity Gauntlet itself. Anyway, I remember really liking that um, back in the day when it came out, and I don't I don't know that I've ever reread it since I read it when it came out brand new. So yeah, it's it's I'm well overdue to. To look at that again so yeah thanks for bringing this one i really i really dug it and i was looking re- just real quick for what it's worth um i have the key collector app i don't know if either of you guys use this or not but it's it's kind of an interesting uh app because it gives you you know things that are hot right now or you know supposedly hot and and it gives you like a value range and all and i just looked this one up to see what it was going for because like i say i know i i can't ever find it anywhere for cheap and I was kind of surprised that they say that the high end on this one is only like $18. I thought it was a lot higher than that. But I may have been thinking of issue 44, which is a little bit further down the line. It has a very similar cover. It's, again, it's a tiny silver surfer. This time he's being actually held in the hand of a giant Thanos and that one, it says here, the notation on it is that that's the actual introduction of the Infinity Gauntlet. That one, um, the high end on that is $65. So I may I may have been thinking of that issue because they, they look, they have very similar covers. Would you say it was 44? 44, yeah. Yeah, I don't have that. So, Bill, if you have the extra on that, that would be good. <laughs> I'll get right on it. I'm looking to see. No, I don't. You know, most of the stuff in the Thanos, you know, the... Uh, Whatever they call this this saga, the Thanos saga, the Infinity Gauntlet saga, whatever they call it, most of these I do not have in my own collection. So yeah, 
But otherwise, I see, I do see this run in the in the cheap bins all the time. I just don't see those issues in the cheap bins. Probably not. All right, so that'll be book mm-hmm. number one, and I guess we oh, ready to move right. on to book number two, which is just your typical <laughs> Scott book. Yeah, actually, this is more bitches. of a typical Bill book, Bill. Bill has had a way of bringing just some strange books to the front. And I say that as a compliment uh, that, you know, we might not otherwise look at. And I've always appreciated that. Uh, You know, I remember, Bill, you bringing like a hot rod book. And I remember you bringing, you know, one of those love story books and things of that nature that, again, it's just nice to every once in a while have something that's just a little off the beaten path for us. And Scott, that's your (laughs) turn. And I know why you picked it. Uh, but you know, it, it is definitely different. You do know why I picked it? Tony D. Zuniga. There you go. All right. So yeah, a little bit of history on this one. So, uh, I scored this one recently at a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, not a flea market, a, uh, an antique store, an antique store, an antique mall. In, uh, in Oviedo, Florida, where I used to live, I was over on that side of town uh, not long ago for something or other and uh, remembered the nice little antique stores, you know, antique malls that they have over there and thought, well, I, I've got the day free. I'll stop in. I'll see what I can find. Did some digging around and uh, just happened to uh, score this beauty in there. Um, this one had been on my want list because it came up um, in a search of the works of Tony D. Zuniga. There's... I went through a while ago, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, and I I came up with uh, names of artists that I'd really like to try to, you know, my very best to collect as much of their works as possible. You know, really, really with certain ones like Dizaniga and like Jim Apparel, I'd really like to have their complete works, if at all possible, you know, their complete works published in comics. And... Uh, you know, with those two guys in particular, that that really seemed like it was probably possible because, you know, while they did work on some books that are, are rather pricey, for the most part, everything seemed like it was probably within reach. So I've been working on that. So anyway, this one was on my list, never really expecting it to find it because it's pretty far removed from anything I would normally be interested in or, or you know, that I normally chance across when I'm digging for comics, but it just happened to be in a box I was digging through and it was four bucks. I thought, what the hell I'll go ahead and buy it. As it turns out from everything I can find, and maybe somebody else has better resources or somebody else can tell me the, what the actual skinny is on this. But from what I've been able to research on this it seems like just about all of the credits on this book are extremely in question. It's it's almost like nobody really knows for sure who the actual creators involved are. And I found in my limited research on this subject that this kind of seems to be par for the course when it comes to things like uh, romance comics and some of the other genres uh, of older comics that because of the kind of throwaway nature of them, nobody really kept records or nobody really seemed to give a shit, you know, as far as keeping track of who did what. So I'm just, I say all this as a preface to say that every one of the credits that I'm about to give on this kind of has a question mark after it. So what are we looking at? We are looking at 
from DC. Uh, this actually started out as a quality comics title, so it's kind of like a quality slash DC. This is Heartthrobs number 133. Yes, it's a romance comic. Ooh. Something that uh, Scott knows absolutely not a damn thing about. Um, cover dated August slash September 1971. Was actually on sale on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on June 22nd, 1971. The cover on this, again, you have to remember, I'm, I'm, you know, put the question mark on afterwards, but everything I found seems to say that the cover on this is by Don Heck and Vinnie Coletta. And it's it's an all right cover. From the, it doesn't from really the look have of it, anything I think I would confirm with... that. I, I, that definitely looks like yeah. Don Heck to me. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, yeah, I definitely see the Vinnie Coletta in the inks. Now, you know, we, we've said a lot of things about Vinnie Coletta over the years, both good and bad. And, uh you know, one thing I will say about Vinnie Coletta, the dude knew, knew how to draw women. I mean, he was a very good artist on the female form. So, you know, there's that. Plus, um, something I would really like to bring to the show sometime soon that I, I just recently finally got around to reading was um, All-Star. What was it called? All-Star Limited Collection Edition, whatever the hell. They're, you know, the big treasury size, the DC one, C-55, which is Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. I've had it for years. Finally got around to reading it for the first time recently. That's actually inked uh, by Coletta over um, Mike Grell. And damn, it's really, really good. He, he brought his A-game to that one. So, I, I, you know, I'm not always hating on the Vidi Coletta. So anyway, the cover on this doesn't really have anything to do with the story that we're looking at inside. It's, it's actually kind of a humorous cover by today's standards because this guy is totally forcing himself on uh, on the girl on the cover. But uh, original cover price on this was 25, only 25 cents. Now, normally I make the joke, you know what that means, kids. But I actually decided, you know what, before I make that joke, I'm going to look into this. So stunningly, I found out that the price did not increase the next issue or the next issue or the next issue after that. In fact, brace yourselves, it maintained that price until 143 when it actually went down in price by five cents and 16 pages. <laughs> it, it, actually, wow. it actually maintained its 20 cent price up until uh, the end of the series. I forget what issue it, it ended at, but uh, I mean, this title ran a long, long time. Um, so anyway, we're looking at the third story in the book, which I just realized I totally forgot to write down the credits for. So again, with that question mark in place, it was we don't know who wrote it. There, are, I could not find a single writing credit on any story in this book, so we don't know the writer. Um, the penciler is believed to be Bill Drott. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the correct yeah, correct pronunciation. It's D-R-A-U-T. I'm, I'm going to assume Drott, Drought. Uh, I, I've never even heard of this person before, and I did not look him up. Um, and then again, the inks are believed to be Vinnie Coletta, and I'm I'm pretty sure I, I seem to see the uh, the Vinnie Coletta, or excuse me, not Vinnie Coletta, um, uh, Tony Disniga rather, Tony Disniga inks, and I and I do see the Disniga in there. I'll be pointing that out. So this title, it's the third story in the book, inexplicably entitled "The Perfect Couple." I guess because dirty goddamn hippies is just a, a little too on the nose. So anyway, in a tent. 
on Sunrise Farm, a meeting of dirty goddamn hippies, henceforth to be referred to as simply the DGH, is called by a colorblind undertaker. He tells the gathered assemblage that Jason Hart won't let them use the stream anymore and that in 10 days they'll be without water. They have to leave or they will have to leave forever. And every time I see forever, I hear forever. I, and now <laughs> I can't ever help but hear Rizzo the rat going forever. And I know somebody out there is going to get that reference. So Jory, henceforth, I'm going to refer to her actually as Yori because I think it's cooler and it reminds me of Cindy Morgan from Tron. Uh, Yori is a hot little redhead that dresses like Annie Oakley for some reason. She hops up and says, oh, hell no. And she storms into town to confront Mr. Hart. About 20 minutes later, this is important, 20 minutes later, Yori bursts into the office of Hart Retail uh, Real Estate and heads right for Hart's office. But she's stopped by a handsome young feller who asks what he can do for her. His name is Dan. He's Hart's son. She tries to plead her case, but Dan's having none of it. The DGH disgust him and his father, and the town, um, uh, they're just not appreciated around these parts, basically, is what he says. So she calls him a square. But, you know, back to the bins listeners, they know that if she would really wanted to get under his skin, she'd have called him a cube. <laughs> she and uh, <laughs> she says, how dare he pass judgment on the DGH without ever even stopping by to meet them and storms out in a huff. And so Annie Oakley, I mean Yori, finds herself hoofing it all the way back to Sunrise Farm when Dan pulls up in his sporty red convertible and offers her a lift. Now, it's important to note that this sequence is illustrated as if he picks her up in the middle of friggin' nowhere. But I thought it said it only took her 20 minutes to walk into town before, so how near or far is this Sunrise place anyway? <laughs> So, you know, he says, you know, she's right, and he should at least visit once and meet the DGH in person before judging them. And so she takes him to meet her DGH friends, friends, and he gets the nickel tour. At the end of it, he apologizes, and he gives her a peck on the cheek, which, I guess, is all it takes for this chick, because in the next sequence, they're already screwing under a tree. Eventually, this relationship brings him into conflict with his father, and we finally get to meet the elusive Jason Hart. And he seems a perfectly sensible fellow. He's a businessman who's worked hard for what he's got, and why should he give it away to these no-good squatting DGH? Here, here, you go, Jason Hart. Anyhow, uh, Hart is appalled by Dan's change of heart and worried about his dating one of, quote-unquote, their women. So Hart pays Yori a visit and offers her a deal. He'll give up the water if she'll go away and never come back. Deal? He gives her seven panels to agonize over it before accepting his proposition. But what's this? Just then Dan bursts in and he's 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 dressed like a DGH. Yes, Dan has decided that living the clean life of money, cars, fashion, good grooming habits, and proper hygiene just isn't his scene anymore, daddy-o. And so he throws it all away for some sweet, sweet redhead action, leaving his honest, dedicated, hardworking, self-sacrificing father, who built it all to have something to hand on to his son one day, a lonely, broken old man. 
The moral of this story, kids, is it's perfectly okay to throw it all away and break your old man's heart over a woman so long as she's smoking hot. The end. Oh, and uh, he did actually turn the water back on. Smash the patriarchy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> also, I made a stunning, stunning discovery in this. I, I could not believe. I, I mean, it's an incredible coincidence. There's a one-page text article here that says how to get the grooviest guy at the party. The very <laughs> first word in it, or the very first sentence in it says, make sure his name isn't Paul Spataro. And I could not believe that. <laughs> That's because no, there really think is I'm the grooviest guy, guy at the, the party. Guy at the party. <laughs> they're, they're wrong, but they think I am. <laughs> so what did you think about this masterpiece? I liked it until you said that I wasn't groovy. <laughs> um, I did not read any of the other um, stories in this. I only read this one. Oh, and, uh, see, yeah, this is, and that's and that's sad uh, because the very first story, the guy's name is the the creepy guy hitting on the uh, girl at the engagement party. Um, well, no, not the guy hitting on. Okay, so there's a guy hitting on the girl on the very first page. And this uh -huh. other character says, easy, Bill, whoever that character is, is kissing <laughs> Gail. Keep your cool. Remember, this is your engagement party. And Bill says, yeah, but I, I, yeah, but I don't believe in sharing my girl with anyone. So, yeah, we could have got some mileage out of, uh, you know. Oh, Bill, I'd like you to meet George Nolan, an old friend of mine. We have F George Nolan. Yeah. He looks like he could be a younger you, too. Fully. What? what? Younger me. What? I I, I wear a, a button-up, double-breasted suit suit jacket. Oh, you well, know? actually, I probably did in high school every now and then. <laughs> just, to, just to throw things up. And I'm not that skinny. I think this is kind of what I, what I see it as is it's standard early 1970s romance comic. And I don't have a tremendous amount of early 1970s romance comic information, but it feels like it's kind of typical for what, you know, one of the rare occasions where I've read one of those books. It's, you know, overly simplistic and, the, you know, everybody, they fall in love so quickly. And, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of silliness, but it's, you know, it's decent for passing the time. And if it's the kind of thing that you're into, uh, you know, it's cool. That's, I don't yeah, really have a lot so more thought than that, though. Yeah, it's it's totally not my bag at all. Um, I, I got nothing out of it. I mean, I'm I'm glad I got it just, you know, for the completest in me or whatever. But even even that wasn't very I mean, I'm glad I didn't pay much for it. And even four bucks was more than I should. I mean, this is this really I mean, it's worth a lot more. I mean, you know, by the book is worth a lot more. Um, than Not the four me. bucks I paid for, but yeah, exactly. To me, this is—I mean, I, I wish I'd gotten this for like fifty, maybe like a dollar tops, because yeah, it's—I it, mean, I'll never look at it again. Um, <laughs> the 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 reason I got it was for the diesel, and even that, I can tell it's him mostly by Dan, uh, the character of Dan in here. And a little bit in some of the panels with uh, with Annie Oakley, whatever the hell, Yori, Jory, whatever her name was. Um, but I, you know, it's it's not the distinctive Dizaniga that I that I like or that I'm used to. 
Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's not remarkable. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the entire book, I mean, the, the artwork throughout, and I don't know, again, I didn't read it, so I don't know about the stories, but as far as the artwork, it is the textbook definition of serviceable. Although I have to say the story right after this, I really, really wish I knew who the, uh, who the art team is on it because when I initially flipped through the book before I looked up the credits, I was trying to figure out, okay, which stories did Dizaniga work on in here? And I'd swear that there are, there are some sequences in the next story the ashamed of my love story that looked to me like it could be Dizaniga, but um, you should every- be ashamed of some of those fashions. Holy crap! Yeah, exactly right. But the very first, the splash page, right there, actually looks a lot to me like um, colon inked by Dizaniga, like from uh, from like Daredevil or something like that. Mm. So yeah, I'm really not sure who the art team is on this. I, I did look it up and I forget what it said, who it, who it said it was. Now it was not a name I recognized, but that I mean that artwork actually is is pretty good throughout. I mean it's it's again it's a goofy romance thing, so it's nothing I'm interested in reading. But at least the artwork is. I think it's better than a book like this deserves, <laughs> you know, if you know what I mean. So, but uh, I can't help but wonder when I when I stumble across things like this. I mean, I've already got enough of a mystery on my hands for how did something like Jimmy Olsen last as long as it did? But when it comes to something truly wacky like this, you know, how did something like this run? For as long, you know, for years and, and hundreds of issues, I, I just, I mean, granted, it's not aimed at me, but who who is it aimed at? Who was buying these I think, comics? I think it's aimed at tween girls of that era. You know, girls, I mean, between, the, girls between like 9 and 12, 9 and 14, somewhere in there. Right. Well, I agree with you, but I mean, the popular myth all these years has always been that girls didn't buy comics. So, I mean, is that not true then? Uh, I mean, is this putting the lie to that or, or I mean, what what are your thoughts on I mean, do we know? I, th- I think the expectation at that era was lower than, uh, you know, than for other comics. I think they produced these. They probably put them together cheaper than other books, you know, as far as the paying the talent and whatever. So, you know, and you combine that with, uh, you know, they probably had less of a print run, which is, I would think, you know, maybe one of the explanations for why they say this is more valuable than we would think yeah. it would be is because the print run might be really kind of, you know, very limited. Uh, right. Although very limited back then would be a bestseller now. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's it's an interesting you know contrast there, uh, but I, I do think you know they I think they had a, you know whatever their level of market analysis was that you know okay uh, you know Action Comics latest issue we expect to sell four hundred thousand copies of, uh, you know the the latest romance book you know if we sell fifty thousand we're happy. You know I, I, right. I think it was that kind of a distinction, so you know again I think they probably kept their costs down. So to justify it, 
but they also didn't have the same expectations for it. Right. So that's that's how I would imagine it went. Now, you know, I, you also, you know, if, if you look at the current day and age, uh, you'd really have a problem with this now because I think, you know, currently, uh, you know, the only the only use that, that these companies have for the comics industry is, well, if we come out with something, you know, are we going to have an, an IP that we can make a movie out of? And certainly this right. isn't one of them. <laughs> right. But, you know, again, I, I just, you know, when I look at this, it's just, it's typical for what I would expect of that day and age from that type of book. It's not something that was ever aimed at me. Uh, it's not something that ever will be aimed at me. And that's cool. You know, that's fine. Everybody has their own, you know, their own tastes. This one's just not for me. Well, marketing to the to the late fifties year old man. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they were writing this. But you know, let's be fair. I don't think you know if you look at all three of us. I don't think there was ever a time that this was a book where we'd be targeted for it. Uh, so it's not you know it doesn't have anything to do with age. When I was twelve, I was not the target audience for this either. Right. But no. but you know but to be fair, uh, you know if, when you would. 10, 11, 12 years old, if you were sitting in a waiting room somewhere and you, you know, you're waiting for whatever that your parents are doing uh, and, and they have a little stack of comic books there and, you know, they're all this type of book, you'd still pick it up and read it. Maybe. Would would I? Huh? Would I, though? Yeah, I think you would. <laughs> yeah, you would, just to see what the art... Just, Ooh, let me look at the just art. Just out, out of boredom and whatever, it's a comic book, okay, I'll read it and see if there's anything that'll interest me. I don't know that that situation ever presented itself to me, but I could see that that could happen in, in the right circumstance, if there was the, the right confluence of events. Well, I mean, that, that definitely shows me how I have how I have changed as a collector of comics over the years, because you're, you're right in the sense of back in the day. I honestly don't think, you know, I, you know, given your scenario, you know, sitting in the doctor's office or whatever, that I, I would pick up and, and read a romance comic or, or whatever. But these days, you know, when I'm digging through boxes of comics, you know, anywhere. You know, like like in this example, you know, I was at a at a uh, an antique mall. I may not thumb through it, every one of them, but there are times when often, I'll, you know, in the back of my mind, there's a little voice that's that's wondering, am I passing up any gems? You know, is there is there you know work in a particular issue, uh, you know, that would appeal to me? You know, something that that would grab me. Um, you know, a, a favorite artist or, you know, discovering some new artist or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, there, you know, there's always that thought that I never really had much of back in the day. It was just, it was a quick dismissal. Oh, this is, you know, this is that kind of a comic. I, I'm not interested in, I would just, you know, zoom right on past it. Um, to be fair, I would still zoom you know, right on past it. <laughs> <laughs> there's a... But I, I liked your theory about the print run because I I, I can only imagine that's that's gotta be, um, you know, a, a big reason, probably the reason for some of the prices on these. I'm trying to find it here and, it, and it's eluding me. But there's a there's a book that's on my want list that I actually have an ongoing search going on, you know, automated search going for it on eBay. And every single time it pops up, 
I, I, I'm, I'm stunned anew by just how stupid expensive the listings always are for it. But I, I am failing to find which book it actually is here. But I, you know, it doesn't appear that there's anything special about it. So I'm, I'm thinking it's got to be because the print runs were just really stupid low and now they've become, you know, hard to find or whatever. And, and that's you know, still it, it's an explanation and it makes sense on a peripheral level to me. But when I start digging deeper into it, it still doesn't make sense, because if you're printing something that isn't really appealing to me, I don't care that it's rare. <laughs> it's still not appealing to me. So but right. but I but I think a lot of other collectors look at it differently than I do as far as that goes. Oh, it's rare. I have to have it. Uh, you know, so uh, you know, I, I think of uh, Robert Downey Jr. in the uh, in the first Iron Man movie when he's talking about whatever piece of art, uh, and and he he doesn't even care. It's like you know, buy it and store it away. But she says, oh, it's a a good example of his whatever period. Oh, I gotta have it. <laughs> he doesn't even <laughs> care about it. He just has to have it. Uh, so so it's like, yeah, you know. We have this romance comic. Oh, I'm not interested in that. There aren't that many of them. Ooh, I have to have it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So it's a little lost on me, but I do think it is a a true explanation of it. I think this is the book right here that I I was thinking of. It's DC 100-page Super Spectacular number five, and it's just love stories. And on a quick look here, I might be missing where he's got more work in the issue, but what I'm seeing here in the in the thing I'm looking at, it says there's a one-page table of contents drawn by D. Zanigas. That may be his only work in the entire issue. I'm, I'm thinking this is why it's on my want list. But I can understand uh-huh. that one being more of a collectible because in that particular series there would be superhero books and different things so you get the completist who wants to get the whole series and that issue has a low print run so now at least the logic of why they want to obtain it makes some sense to me that that holds because not long ago um I, I just I lucked out and I got a huge collection of those little the DC Digest size books. You know the ones I'm talking about, like Blue Ribbon Digest and those types. I, I got a whole ton of them not long ago, and it was just about the whole set. And while the idea of having a complete collection briefly appealed to me, I'm like, you know, I, I need to escape that mindset of, of being the completest for completest sake, especially when it's something I'm not really interested in. You know, why why keep it? Why tie up space for something I'll never read? I'm not really interested in just to be a completist. You know, I've really worked hard to, to break out of that mindset. So I turned around and I and I sold off the issues that weren't personally appealing to me. And I was really surprised in most cases by the ones that were not the superhero related issue, because most of those series were, you know, they were reprints of superhero stuff like Secret Origins and, you know, the Superman versus Kryptonite and those type of things. But there were a lot of them that were like ghosts or funny animals or romance in some examples 
those ones were almost invariably the most valuable issues of of that series. And I think your theory really holds that it's because the print runs were lower on that stuff because they felt like they were gambling a little bit more when it wasn't superhero stuff. Well, can, can add, add to that also that the people who did buy them were probably not your typical collectors. So even the issues that were out there, a lot of them were probably thrown out and destroyed after they were read. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true, too. You know, the superhero ones are much more likely to have been purchased by somebody who, after they finished reading it, you know, put it, you know, back then, I don't think there was quite as much, you know, bagging and boarding, but still would have been maintained as part of a collection. You know, the, the, well, you wonder... know, the, the romance ones, I don't think so much. Well, I wonder, too, I mean... I, I don't know enough about this. I, I mean, I, I know in my own marriage, my wife is not a collector, you know, and, and most women bye I've bye. known or, or dated or whatever didn't really necessarily collect much of anything. I mean, they might, you know, have, have little, you know, where they collected like little knickknacks or something like, but as far as like us, you know, where you're amassing a huge collection of something to, to my experience women don't tend to be that way i'm not trying to be sexist i'm just saying <laughs> so my I'm, mother <laughs> so i'm wondering um you know if that ties into this as well you know much as you said you know that the maybe the audience for this type of thing it was a buy it read it throw it away give it away you know whatever type of situation so again lending into you know the them being more rare I don't know. I, I wonder if that holds. Or not. I, I really don't know for sure. I'm yeah, kind of talking these are only theories on... that I'm throwing against the wall, so I don't know if they're right. reality either. But I think they make sense at least. Because I've been trying to figure out, you know, because there's a number of these type of books on my want list that, I mean, again, don't get me wrong, I'm not prepared and I'm not going to spend any significant money on something like, you know, love stories or young romance or any of these other ones that are on here. But it's, it's one of those, Hey, if I chance across it at a yard sale for a buck, you know, I'll pick it up because, you know, I know that it has work by so-and-so on it. But when adding it to my want list, you know, especially from a resource like, like say, Mike for it's just sometimes it's just absolutely stunning to me. I'm like, holy shit, really? And, you know, because of the nature of this hobby, my mind always goes to, oh, there must be something significant. It must be a key issue. There must be something going on with this. And I just I really don't think that there is. I, I, it's got to be the print run thing because I'm I don't know of any of these that I'm hunting where it's like their first work. You know what I mean? I, I can understand if it was like, you know, this obscure issue of young love is the very first work by Jim Aparo or, you know, whoever. But it's that's not the case. It's just a standard run of the mill issue of said book. But for whatever reason, it's going for stupid money, and it—it's got to be the print run thing. I'm thinking. I, you know, I, I can't think of any other reason really. Yeah, and while, while Tony Dijonega has caught your eye and become a uh, collectible target, I don't think you know the world at large is you know put him on that pedestal. 
So I don't think his right, presence on right. the book has, has driven up the value of it. Uh, no offense to him whatsoever. Uh, no, but, you know, I, just, no, just, you know, just, I, just I, I don't think that that is the driving force between it being, you know, a more expensive book. So you got to look to other reasons. And, you know, like I said, the things I said, I think make more sense than anything else I can come up with. Yeah. Well, if there's anybody in our listening audience that knows more about this subject, you know, and wants to share, I'd be, I'd be very curious to know. Cause yeah. Cause I, I'm, you know, the books I'm looking at, I'm looking, I've got two right in front of me right here, just on, on a list that I'm looking at, which is they're both by DC. One is young love One Twenty Two, and the other one's young romance comics, One Seventy One. And just looking at the list of creators, I'm not going to read any out because I don't want to be insulting to any particular creator. But just looking at the list of creators here, there's none that jump out to me like, okay, that makes sense. You know, there's not like, you know, first work by, you know, some big name or something. It's it's all fairly common creators, you know. Mm. And, yeah, so, yeah, it's it's just kind of a mystery to me. But, uh but again, I mean, despite these things being on my want list, it's nothing I'm actively pursuing. It's got to be a, you know, drops in my lap for cheap type of situation. And I tell you, after this one, um, I'm I'm once bitten twice shy because even though it was only four bucks, four bucks might not be much to some people. But to me, four bucks, eh, it's more than I'm willing to do again for something like this because, uh, yeah, this was a humdinger. <laughs> Did you know that four bucks will barely buy will buy you a large fry at McDonald's, but leave you with less than a dollar's change? I thought you were going to say something like would feed a family in Africa for a month or something like no, that. Really no, but it upsets it. Right now, like, like the Sally Struthers commercial or something. For three sixty nine, you could buy yourself a large fry. And that's it. I don't. Have you seen me? I don't need a large fry. Thank you very much. Well, you were looking good last time I saw you. Yeah, well, you haven't seen me lately. <laughs> oh, well, I I actually yesterday morning I got on the scale after it stopped screaming. It gave me the the measurement. Just say I one was one at a time, please. One at a time. <laughs> it actually for the first time in oh god, I don't know how many years or possibly decades, I was below two fifty. I was 249. I thought your wife bro- threw the broken scale out. What? Wait. No. <laughs> Found Bill in the 250 box. Oh, that's good. That is good. That is excellent. Congratulations, my friend. Yep. Hopefully it's nothing. Ho- hopefully it's the medication I'm taking. Because <laughs> it sure <laughs> hell isn't anything I'm doing. Either that or I'm really sick. Yeah, don't even. Don't even go there. Yeah. Maybe I got raditis. Could be. That's a it's possibility. All, it's all that explosive diarrhea. Hey. Wait for weight loss. Actually, no, I'm just I'm not gonna go there. It's kinda of been the reverse. It's <laughs> TMI, like TMI, my friend, TMI. It's like, well, when was the last time I did this? Hmm. I'm not quite sure. And then it'll be like I'm I'm pushing out of freaking watermelon out my butt to the audience if you're hearing this i did not do a good job of editing ah <laughs> uh, you know you're gonna leave it in i hold back nothing obviously i'm an open not. book no obviously actually obviously effects. not <laughs> <laughs> there's something you're holding back 
guess I got to start eating cardboard to get some more fiber in there or something. I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, at this point we've probably uh, gone beyond our we've stayed beyond our welcome to the audience now. Nah. <laughs> so I'm gonna say. Uh, well, we didn't actually put any grades on this. I don't know if we should or not, actually. Uh, because, but, but, but let's it was go. A nice distraction. Scott, give us some I'm grades. Sure. Let's totally give it grades because it's uh, okay. Um, well, I, the cover doesn't really play into this. So, are we grading the cover? No. Okay, so not grading the cover. All right, so grading the story such as it is and the art. Um, all right. So the story, the story is a, uh, the story is a D minus. Um, I'm not giving it an F only because I could follow it from beginning to end, but uh, it's know. just, are you giving it a D because you don't like the hippies, dirty goddamn hippies? No, you're right. I don't like them. And, and it, it, they're wrong in this case. And now, Granted, you don't get enough of the specifics to know the whole story here, but I envision them as they're squatters. Like, they, they have no right to this. They have no right to their indignation over this situation. It seems to me like like Mr. Hart has every right to control. I mean, this is his land. It's it's his water. You know, he's he's totally in the right in this situation. So I don't know what they're so worked up about and everything plus at the end of the story he he does he gives it to him anyway but i don't know the whole story's it's just goofy i mean now granted it's it's short i mean it's only i mean how many pages is this it is eight pages so i mean it's got to move along but everything happens so quick i mean plus i you know it's just it's a sign of when it was made, how quickly things things happen, but also how they happen. I mean, totally unsolicited, Dan pulls, uh, what's her name, Yori, to him and kisses her. I mean, these days the guy would end up in jail or something for doing this, you know. It's I mean, he, it's you know, there's no boundaries or whatever. Plus, it does the trick because then you know the very next thing they're you know they're together they're a couple they're making out and everything and he you know throws it all away and it's just oh the whole thing is just so stupid so yeah so you're right yes i you know is there a little bit of prejudice involved on my part in this absolutely there is can't stand hippies but it's also that i you know they're they're wrong i mean they have no right to you know, to their grievance in this situation, you know. Can you it's show me on the doll stuff. where the hippie touched you? <laughs> yes, I could. Um, the artwork, I mean, the artwork's perfectly serviceable. Um, other than that, I don't know what to say. I mean, it, you know, I mean, it, it would have to be pretty spectacular to stand out in any way for me anyway, just given the nature of what it is, because it's not like, you know, it's it's, it's not made to be action or adventure or excitement. It's supposed to just it's a romance book. So, I mean, how, you know, how jazzed up over it could you get? But 
you know, that said, I mean, it does the job. It's it's good looking. You know, there there are some you know some decent panels, and you know the the lighting's nice and all that. The coloring's eh, it's kind of run of the mill coloring. Um, so I I don't know artwork. I'm gonna say I'll say a C plus. I mean, it, it's you know it's it's decent to look at, and you know it it gets the job done, but it's it's nothing it's nothing spectacular. Um, I've definitely seen much better uh, work by by Dizaniga, and again, I I don't see a lot of his distinct style in here either i mean because he has a very distinct style um that's normally very easy for me to pick out and i don't really see it here it's one of those things where with this particular story i'm really having to hunt for it so yeah it's it's okay but yeah as as a whole it's it's, it's pretty stupid it is well, i'm uh, gonna go uh, ahead Bill. Oh, i'm gonna give it a C overall for cool commune. <laughs> I'm I'm also going to give it a C overall because I think it kind of fits, uh, you know, the the definition of C average book for the audience it's intended for. I think it's it's just right. like I said it, it 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 didn't strike me as particularly good or bad for that genre. So I think it's kind of just average, and that's fine. So there's no problem with that. But just the thought I had when you were talking about the artwork, Scott, is uh, you know who I could see drawing this style of book and having it really pop and, and be spectacular is Neil Adams. I think uh, I just, yeah. just picture you know his his the way he would draw faces and even people of that era. I could see him drawing this book in a way where you'd say, oh wow, look at this artwork. And I, and I think just you know this is just off the top of my head but i do believe he did some work um in romance books as well some of that stuff might be on my want list as well i'm not i'm not sure but just off the top of my head that does kind of ring a bell that he that he did do some of that stuff and i mean you know even when it's um you know, it's genres like this that I'm not really interested in. I mean, it, it's still possible to still sometimes do some really great work because, uh, you know, Apero before, you know, coming to DC and coming to Batman and everything. I mean, he did work all over the place in all kinds of different genres with companies like Charlton and stuff. And some of that stuff, as I've been able to score it, um, some of it's really good looking stuff despite being in kind of a eh, genre that, you know, I, I don't really care anything about. So, I mean, it's still possible to kind of wow me artistically, even if the, you know, the, the story material is something that, you know, totally just isn't for me. So, you know, th this was just kind of, in this case, it was just kind of unfortunate that it didn't really do that. It's just kind of, eh, I mean, it, it was okay. I don't, I don't know. Disagree. Looking over, looking over Neil Adams' credits just briefly here. I guess I was talking out my ass because I do not see any romance stuff by him. But I could have sworn I, that he had done. You never. <laughs> Maybe I was thinking of Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis. He did work on Bob Hope and Jerry Lewis. Maybe that's what I was thinking. Wow. But yeah. But yeah, I, I thought he had at least a couple of romance things to his credit but no i don't see any on a quick i'm just on a quick scan 
But yeah, I mean, that's that's the other thing that does sometimes draw, you know, drive up the prices of things like this is when it's early works by people that eventually went on to, you know, be big names, you know, in comics, you know, for for whatever, you know, superheroes or whatever, you know, just kind of earning their bones you know, with lesser stuff like, you know, like a pair again, a paro, you know, a lot of his his early stuff um, is kind of hard to find in. in somewhat valuable because it's Jim Aparo. So. All right. So I think we've basically exhausted the topic and <laughs> we're going to call it a day now. Uh, well, very, I, very I will happy. make a promise to, to, I will make a promise to the listeners not to bring too much of this kind of shit in the future. <laughs> As I yeah. said when we when we opened up, I think every once in a while, just going off the beaten path is a plus. So, yeah, you don't want to bring this. We're not going to become a a romance comic, uh, you know, uh, podcast. But you know, you, you occasionally Aww. throw a curveball out there. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, and I think uh, you know it gives us a chance to talk about some topics we wouldn't normally talk about, and and you know, stretch our muscles a little bit. So I think that's a positive. Sure. So all that said, thanks for uh, listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. I'm a hippie. (laughs) Dirty hippie. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Darn, that's the end.